What's in it for me? It's something I hear from my children. It's something I hear from young people on the train. It's something I hear from older people in all walks of life. And it's something that I hear from Christians today. What's in it for me? What kind of preacher is invited to speak on the Reformation and on Christ alone and chooses some obscure Old Testament passage? I found myself asking the same question one Easter. I wasn't just living in the Bible Belt in the eastern suburbs, but as Mike would say, I was living in the buckle of the Bible Belt, right next to one of our favourite shining stars, Sandstone Church, and Easter comes round. This place has a grand reputation. I'm going to go and see what it's all about. There's all those other affluent... Sorry, I shouldn't use the word other. There's all those affluent people. (laughs) Good white-collar workers making their annual pilgrimage to the local Church of England. Here is that big occasion to get your guest visitors and tell them about the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible reading is Exodus 25. What's in it for me? Well, there's the Ark of the Covenant, which last time I checked was some dusty artefact, some relic of an old cultic system whose demise we celebrate by being New Covenant Christians. It's starting to sound a little bit like reliance on furniture, like one of those higher churches that that has made me very, very staunchly low church in my thinking. It is basically a good movie prop and... What's in it for me? What's in Exodus 25 for me? Absolutely everything. Some chapters of the Bible are supposed to be more exciting than others. I know you're not supposed to have favourites, but we do. Some would argue that John 3.16 is the most important verse. Other people would argue that particularly we need to have uh, a chapter like John 1 or Colossians 1. There are several valuable chapters in Scripture, but amongst all, amongst all 1,189 of them, I reckon if we can grasp Exodus 25 properly, then we can explain a huge chunk of the Bible for ourselves and for others. Now, you might be on campus this morning, you might be in Old Testament with Charlie. You need this chapter to pass the next two weeks at college. You might be in class this morning with Scott exploring God's grace and how it works. Uh, You might be here early for Reformation Church history this afternoon and asking questions about why did a group of people rebel against the established church. Perhaps you were in chapel last week when Richard preached about the importance of all scripture being God-breathed and yet you might be one of those people who still struggles to feel confident in rightly handling the Old Testament You might be listening to this sermon online where our preaching class this week is arguing about the question, should all sermons lead to Jesus? You might be a good Anglican and reading TMA, the diocesan newspaper this month, and asking questions about the claim that Mary was sinless and an avenue to Jesus. You might be like heroes of the faith like Martin Luther or Jonathan Edwards, or like millions of Muslims around the world today who are stressed out about how to survive as a sinner in the hands of an angry God. You need, and those in your ministry care need, Exodus 25. 
Today's passage marks the beginning of 16 long chapters, which are rarely covered in Sunday school or in sermon series. Uh, They introduce the tabernacle. We might know a little bit about the idolatry of the golden calf in Exodus 32, but the rest of these tabernacle chapters are pretty much virgin scripture. Chapter 25 starts the general introduction to these whole 16 chapters. Have it in front of you. Flick ahead and find out what's coming up. Try and remember the last time you worked through these chapters. But chapter 25 introduces what's going on and then looks at three of the most important pieces of furniture before it moves on to the tents that enclose this furniture, into the courtyard around this, into other parts of the tabernacle and the priesthood. Now, in New Testament studies, when we look at the parables of Jesus, we often find that the answer is given away towards the end of a parable. And so it is in this part of the Old Testament. We'll find that the main point of each of these two sections that Tom read for us come at the end of each of the sections. Let's start with the opening section. Here we find the general materials that God commands Moses to ask the people to bring. And they bring, willingly, these grand donations. One of the rare moments, I'm I'm going to go out on a limb here, and suggest perhaps the only time in history where the people are so enthusiastic that by the time we get to chapter 36, the call goes out to stop giving because we have so many grand donations. But as we read through the list here, what we find is valuable metals, precious materials and cloths, other equipment and gemstones. These are gifts of value. These are gifts fit for a king. And indeed, what we are building here is a palace. We have found ourselves at Mount Sinai where God has just given the Ten Commandments to his people. He's outlined his expectations for them and made a promise of relationship to them. And rather than they remain at Mount Sinai, or God remains at Mount Sinai, he commands here the building of a portable palace that he might move with his people, that they might move with him. And there's the summary in those last two verses, eight and nine. Then let the people, having brought all of these building resources, let them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. These are some technical terms here. You might know what they mean. You might guess what they mean. But just to make sure, a sanctuary is a special place. It's a God place. But it's nothing more or less than a place fit for God. And tabernacle, that sounds really exotic. You might think of some important choirs that come from the United States. But otherwise, it's just a rando, Christianized. Jewish term that we sometimes struggle to deal with. Well, welcome to some Latin. It's the Latin word for tent. God wants a tent. So that's the key point, not just of today's passage, but of these next 16 chapters of Exodus and beyond. Let me paraphrase verse 8 again. Then let them make for me, God, a special God place, and I will dwell among them. Make this tent dwelling and all its furnishings. I wonder if from our New Testament perspective we sometimes lose the impact. But listen to what he's said here. Here is a God not to be sought by humans, 
but a God who comes to humans. This is not a God who remains at a distance from people, but a God who yearns and facilitates dwelling in their midst. Friends, here is the basis of the whole Old Testament religious system. Here is why the rest of Exodus is full of building projects. Here is why Leviticus, when we bravely turn to it, details endless sacrifices and instructions about clean and unclean and when you should be closer to God and when it's safer to be further away from him. Here is why Numbers and Deuteronomy outline priests and how God's people are to live not just for him, but with him. The Israelites are not only ambassadors on behalf of God's name and reputation. The Israelites are actually attendants of God's presence. When we do make our way, I guess the adjective is religiously through the rest of Exodus, and then if your Bible reading plan makes you read through all of Leviticus, you get to the end and you find this grand, awesome promise that says, if the Israelites... Follow God's commands, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. And that promise is already transparent just in the next section, the second section that we look at this morning. From verse 10 onwards, yes, it's all about the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, Steven Spielberg got it right. Whenever I go looking for a model of the Ark of the Covenant, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a great representation of this box. It's got the dimensions right, the proportions right, covered in gold, it's got carrying poles, it has a solid gold lid with a couple of cherubim facing each other. And you can read those details through here. Thanks, Tom, for doing that. And the question then is, how often do we read these? And what state are our eyes in as we go through? They might start to glaze over a little bit. But please make sure they open up by the time you get to verse 21, which outlines that within this ark, this box, okay, ark is just another technical term meaning box, inside this box is put the tablets of the commandments that God has given to Moses. Here is the place where God most fully dwells on earth among his people. And here is the place that he promises to appear and communicate with human beings. The rest of uh, the Pentateuch spells this out. But have a look here at verse 22 in particular. There above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant Law, I will meet with you and give you all my commandments for the Israelites. This is the centre of God's presence in the Old Testament. Here we have God dwelling amongst his people and then special people get to be closer and closer to God. You have the wider nations who live away from God. You then have the Israelites who are privileged to camp around God. The clean Israelites at the right times, under the right conditions, can come into the tabernacle courtyard to be closer to God. The rostered priests get to walk inside the tent into the most holy place and serve him there. And once each year, the high priest gets to make himself present in front of the Ark of the Covenant in God's presence. It's a grand reward, but such a highly selective routine. I tried this out with my Sunday school class on Sunday. You'd be really lucky if you're in my Sunday school class. You get this kind of thing all the time. 
We, we, we don't have 605,330 members of the people of Israel in my Sunday school class, so we broke them up into only four tribes. <laughs> and then we had to teach them the Hebrew alphabet so you could get Asher, Benjamin, Gad and Dan in alphabetical order. <laughs> and then, one by one, the tribes got voted off as unclean. <laughs> you know, there's only so much planking you can do or eating through five sticks of celery, or working out the square root of 623. But eventually we were left with one tribe. And we took them inside to give them their prize. And we discovered, sorry Benjamin, there's actually only one prize. And only one member of the tribe gets that prize. And it appears to be pretty random, it's just the older person for the priesthood. So one lucky guy is getting himself an iTunes voucher when he comes to class next week. So very selective. But at least for him, such a grand prize for the one winner. Now what should we do with such a passage like this? Apart from getting inspired about Sunday school lessons. Isn't all scripture God breathed and related to salvation? Why on earth might we choose this passage that's a good Friday sermon. Let me give you two examples of what we might do with this kind of chapter. The first example comes from a Bible study series promulgated through John Stott's church in London. We're told that the ark, this box, is God's throne. And that's the way the Bible describes it. We might have some quibbles about where God sits and how to use it as a throne. But it is a passable and defensible and biblical idea. And the Bible studies tells us that it's not just the throne, but when you turn to Revelation, you discover that the throne of God is held by God the Father. Okay. Then the next section, starting at verse 23, that we didn't read today, introduces us to a table. Now, the table has bread. Did you hear that? Bread. And in fact, it's not just any bread, but it's the bread representing God's presence. Now, of course, we all know that Jesus is the bread of life who represents God's presence to us. So the second piece of furniture is about God the Son. So no surprise that when we have a third piece of furniture, it's about the light-giving Holy Spirit. And then the text moves on to talk about something else. Obviously, these three are important and singled out. And it's great to see Father, Son and Spirit here and in the Old Testament. And I love the passion for the Trinity. And I'm not convinced of the quality of the exegesis, people. <laughs> it's great to value the Old Testament and to use it in evangelism and Christian nurture. Let's use it well. That was one of the great achievements of the Reformation, to be more careful with the exegesis of Scripture and to avoid some torrid excesses of analogizing. So let me show you a more excellent way. <laughs> Let me also let you in on a secret. I won't take full credit for this. I am plagiarising fairly closely from the book of Hebrews. So if you want to check up on anything I try and say, I invite you to go home and follow through my working. The tabernacle and the ark, the leather tent with its gold box inside, are not the full story in and of themselves. In fact, we've already been told that back in verse 9. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. When we leave this place and we walk out to morning tea, uh, as you cross the quadrangle or even come back into the quad for morning tea, when you take a next look at the picture of Nicholas Ridley, 
That was put up there by one of our past students and in his previous life he was actually an architectural model maker. That means that when you're trying to show to the uh, investor market your new 56 storey building, you don't actually have to build them a 56 storey building first. You build them a little model about yay high with plastic materials and representative colours and scale model people to show you what it will look like when the reality comes to fruition. And Exodus tells us that the Old Testament system, its tent and its box and its sacrifices and its people are a scale model of what God is doing long term. Here we are in verse 9. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the architectural model, the pattern, the example that I will show you. And then when we turn to Hebrews, a book I hope you all love and adore, and if we don't, it's largely because it sounds like Exodus and Leviticus, <laughs> and tells us that there is actually a real heaven where God fully dwells and reigns. There is a more permanent priest who marches into God's presence to offer sacrifices, and Jesus, our great high priest, offers a far more thorough sacrifice than a sheep or a goat or a bull. His superior work need never be repeated again. And then we realise it's not just Hebrews that does this. You might be more of a Pauline person. You might be a more Johannine church. Well, you find in those New Testament authors as well that they pick up the very language of Exodus 25 and describe Jesus as the atonement cover. Not just the place of atonement, but the place where God meets and communicates with his people. So if your favourite paragraph of scripture is Romans 3, then you need Exodus 25 to understand Paul. We could spend hours unpacking this further and further. You can actually find this running through many of our exegesis units at college. I hope you'll find it in many of our theology units and then in practical ministry skills as we communicate this with people. Let me give you one further connection for now. Here in Exodus 25, we are just starting the designs of God's portable home, his tent, his tabernacle. And then the next 16 chapters detail, in laborious detail, the design and the collection and the construction of this tent. And then when you make it to the end of Exodus, you find that Moses sets up the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord descends upon the tent and God is so present on this occasion. He turns the dial up to 11 and everyone, including Moses, has to back away from God's presence at this point. How much richer then when we turn to John 1 and read, the word became flesh and dwelled, lived, tented, among us and we have seen his glory jesus is the epitome of how god meets with his people the reality of which the tabernacle is but a scale model and so our friends in the reformation that we're celebrating last week and this week noted that it works both ways jesus is the epitome of how god comes to meet with his people and jesus is also the epitome of how people Come to meet with God. We don't need to pray to Mary 
or to some exalted saint in order to gain access to God. We don't need to pay for an indulgence, some piece of paper to declare our sins forgiven. Jesus, our great high priest, has torn open the curtain of the tabernacle, that curtain that separated people from God directly. And Jesus ushers us into God's presence. This changes the way we live and pray. It remains an awe-filled, terrifying experience to come before the living God in prayer. But I can do so with confidence because Jesus takes me by my timid hand and ushers me into his Father's presence and says, God, meet Andrew. Andrew, meet God. We are not shy Christians, let alone those from other religions, desperately hoping that enough prayers and enough works might tip the balance of God's favour towards us. Jesus has already done that. He assures us of complete forgiveness and complete access to God. And friends, this changes the way that we meet and worship. We come before God this morning already as his tabernacle, as his temple, as his dwelling place. It's why it's so crucial that as in the prayers this morning, not only his spirit is with us, but his spirit dwells in us. We are the place that God lives and meets his wider world. We come before God not through some special human priest, sorry Charlie, standing at some piece of furniture that some places call an altar, but we gather together this morning in communion because one of our number stands at a table to celebrate the one true sacrifice for sin which Jesus has already completed through which he obtained an eternal deliverance for his people. Yes, we will also confess our misdemeanors before God, but not because that brings us to God for the first time, but because God has already reconciled us in relationship to himself. We wear crosses around our necks and we decorate our churches with them because it is through Christ, through Christ alone, that we gain access to the very throne room of God. Sisters and brothers, this morning I offer to you the message of Exodus 25. God is a God who has always sought to live among his people, even a sinful people who sometimes bring him into disrepute. He has long planned and modelled for his world this central plan to firmly establish his presence permanently in his world among his people and the rest of his creation through the work of an ultimate priest and sacrifice. We study the Old Testament for a good many reasons, the most fruitful of which is its additional instruction to make us wise for salvation through Christ Jesus to whom be glory and honour forever and ever. Amen. Amen.